0: Welcome to Mind and Soul Matters, I'm Farah Feeney. Through conversations with everyday people, Mind and Soul Matters aims to broaden our understanding of mental health and spirituality, and to deepen our insights into the challenges and meaning of our lives. In the world today, there are over 82 million refugees and displaced people, each with their unique stirring story of hardship, fear, trauma, and resilience. We are privileged to be joined today by Dr. Mania Yazdani to hear her story of trials and triumphs. Mania arrived in Australia as a refugee in 1985, escaping from Iran a few months earlier due to religious persecution. Manya's journey started at the age of 12, following the Iranian Revolution, when those from the Baha'i Faith were deeply impacted and many lost their lives. How does a young girl reconcile her displacement and loss to give back to her community with compassion? Welcome, Dr. Yazdani. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You are 12 years old. There's an upheaval in your country. Your life takes a turn. What happens to this young girl?
1: Wow. How do you summarise a lifetime? So much has changed in the world since then. But even though so much has changed... I want to emphasize that my life at that time was a very stable life. We had a very insular life in many ways. Uh, For me, even though I knew I belonged to a community that believed in a religion that made them a minority and sometimes a target of hate, we were very insular. We had a very comfortable life. I was quite unaware of what was happening. But of course, we know that in 1979, a revolution happened, that they changed the structure at government, at people, at individual level of Iranians. Even though we belonged to a religious minority, we, my parents were employed, we had an upper middle class life, Uh, We went to school, we had access to all um, privileges, education, health. But 1979, a revolution happened that based its foundation on the principle that Islam is the last religion and Baha'is are not welcome in Iran. And after that, uh, our life changed. My parents uh, eventually lost their jobs. Many Baha'is that we knew Uh, got arrested and killed. Eventually, my parents also got arrested. Well, five children. But two siblings and I, we escaped to Pakistan. And after United Nations recognized as refugees, uh, Australia was chosen as a country that would receive us and we were sent here. Um, So I basically was in Iran for six years after the revolution before I arrived in Pakistan and after that, Australia. So I arrived in Australia at the age of 18, life in Australia was the next chapter (laughs) that has been quite wonderful.
0: Right, so what was it like for you as a 12-year-old when it sounds like your family's life turned upside down? Parents were working, they're suddenly unemployed, you had safety and security of living quite a normal life, and then that all changed, that safety and security, freedom, the rights that other people had, that was all taken away pretty much overnight. How did that impact you as a 12-year-old?
1: Physically, it affected things, but also psychologically and spiritually. I really admired my parents, and I thought they were quite wonderful people, and they are wonderful people, but at 12, Also, my own development was happening. So even if the revolution didn't happen, I was also changing. And I became conscious of the injustices that were around the world. I became aware of the injustices that was happening in Iran. The poverty, although it was a rich, all rich nation, there were such extremes of wealth and poverty. So I could understand why people were rising uh, to topple the system that they believed caused these discrimination. So actually, even though I was born into a Baha'i family, uh, because in Baha'i faith, we do not automatically inherit our parents' religion, I decided to investigate other belief system and I became a follower at that stage of Marx, and I really believed in equality, absolute equality. And uh, I was quite angry with my parents that how could they, uh, you know, have a house? And although we were not really rich, my pa- my father uh, was an engineer, my mom was one of the fe- uh, few females that were pharmacists in her, you know, in her town of Tabriz. So uh, for. So she really was a very hardworking uh, woman, but I was just, how could we have all these things? So I wanted to go and contribute to the betterment of the world, to go on these rallies. And at that time, I also had this spirit of, I wanted to change. I want to contribute to the change in Iran for the better. Uh, so I did wanted to go to on these rallies and my parents were very worried, but I thought that No, this is the most exciting time. We are, you watch movies to see history. I felt I was part of the history, that in future people will make movies about this part of Iran. So I was very excited, but I didn't have as much knowledge as I thought I believed I did.
0: You sounded Uh, like quite a typical 12-year-old. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Going into those teenage, adolescent years of wanting to save the world, having those ideals and thinking that you know... A lot,
1: And I also criticized my parents' belief. Yeah. I thought Baha'i faith is just this passive religion, they just say prayers. Mm. I said, how would that, I, I know they're good people, but how are they going to change the world? And I thought, it's the action, it's going on, you know, destroying the old system. And I remember my mom kept me at home one day because she was worried I was going to join this rally that was quite dangerous at that time. And then uh, we got a phone call that from a friend of my mom that I think two or three Baha'is had been executed. My mom knew the friend of a friend and she really wanted to go to the funeral. And uh, she didn't want to leave me alone. Uh, I think at this stage I was 13. She said I had to go with her and I reluctantly joined her. Then I went to this funeral and there were was the largest funeral I've ever seen. And there were so many people of different religious background, including Muslim clergy that were weeping because the people that I later on found out were executed were such good people in their village. And they had contributed to a betterment of their village uh, that even though people superficially hated the Baha'is, they loved these people. So people were crying. They could not believe government had executed for what crime they had been executed. I was very shocked when I saw that because I thought I thought Baha'is are passive people. Why would anybody want to kill them?
0: Hmm.
1: So I decided without telling my mom that I would investigate Baha'i faith for myself because I didn't want them to think I am following their religion because of them. <laughs> right. So um, I started investigating Baha'i faith and I, then I realized... No, it is not a passive religion. You can be passive in anything, but it actually requires you to have two moral purposes, which one is, of course, like any other, any religion, any spiritual movement is about improving your inner character, your inner thought. But ultimately, it is about being part of an infinite history of humanity. That means to contribute to the betterment of the world at any sphere you happen to be born in. So that made it very exciting for me. But of course, I'm still a teenager and I still don't want to say I believe in my parents' religion. So I hid it from them and I did attend some of the meetings, but it was only 16 when I actually declared that uh,
0: I am a Baha'i. Right. Wow. So that funeral left a real impression in your mind and on your soul in that... It seems like you were looking for something, some way to contribute to society, to make a difference, and that funeral kind of left this impression that, hold on a minute, maybe these Baha'is are actually doing something that is meaningful. Steve Bidoff, who talks about the stages for girls, that they go through development, and the age between 10 and 15 is where, the, where girls find their soul. Mm find their purpose and meaning in life, and for you that it was during that stage where the revolution happened, your life turned upside down, and I'll quote from um, Steve Bidolf. He says, a girl that knows her soul, her own soul, has a still in her that is not easily manipulated. She will be loyal, tough, and protective of those around her the revolution and your refugee experience and the persecution of Baha'is at that time really strengthened that steel and that belief in you?
1: I think human soul is a lover of truth. During those crucial ages of 12 to 15, as uh, this psychologist has mentioned, the soul of a girl child, any soul, at that stage, certain realization comes to the soul and they become aware of the dichotomies that exist in society or in their family. But so it is a bit disappointing at the age as, uh, but you also become aware of the powers that you might have, Mm. uh, the inner uh, powers that you have. So definitely that became more um, strengthening me when, um, as I said, I only declared when I was 16, but I was, I mean, I, I would say my parents thought I had definitely had accepted Baha'i faith at 14, 15, but I didn't declare it. But I started also noticing through some of the Baha'i youth that I would meet, this nobility of character, this forgiveness that they had towards people that have really discriminated them, but at the same time not being passive, also trying to change the world around them. When I was uh, attending study group, our teacher, I wouldn't say a teacher, but he was almost like an older youth just uh, talking to us. He was aware of another youth our age in a city called Shiraz. And so I became very familiar with the story of this youth. Her name was Mona. So Throughout the six, nine months that he would tell us what was happening to her, I became very fond of Mona. I wanted to one day meet her. And unfortunately, she got executed. She was only six months older than me. So for me, her imprisonment and death was very, an amazing reminder that we have to live a meaningful life. Even if it could be short, you can still contribute to the advancement of society. So... At times that I've had difficulties and uh, or whether I've been pulled down by my own thoughts, whether it's an internal conflict or external conflict and I've become um, passive or develop apathy, whatever the negative energy is, I am reminded of Mona and people like her that whether uh, physically passed uh, across the path of my life or uh, through the stories, crossed the path of my life. And those stories and those people have definitely lifted me up mm. and reminded me of my purpose in this life. So wow. yeah, I've been very privileged. Every day of those days, were just so alive, and they are the source of energy for my life
0: now. Wow. And I can see you getting emotional when you speak yes. about Mona's story. I can see there <laughs> yes. this, you connected with her, even though you never met her. She was around right. the same age as you. Yes. She was a- imprisoned because of her faith, no yes. other crime, and then she was executed. And what an impression that has left on your life since you were 16. The beginning, you briefly mentioned that you left Iran went to Pakistan for a few months and then you were granted a visa to come to Australia. Because often when we hear about refugee experiences, when we hear, when we watch things on media, we see lots of trauma, sadness, loss, grief. What was that process like for you? Leaving your country, leaving what you know, going really into a world of uncertainty and, and I imagine with maybe a suitcase.
1: <laughs> Look, I don't want to belittle the difficulties we went through. So I would say that it was very hard, but it was not traumatizing. So there was trauma, but I was not traumatized. I, why why uh,
0: do you think that was?
1: I suppose it's quite multifactorial, but there was something about having an ultimate purpose. But also in that those actions, there were also purposes in themselves as well. For example, we escaped... Because really, there was physically not a possibility for us to stay. Having said that, it would be very interesting to study those amazing Baha'is that stayed behind. They themselves are proof of another type of spiritual resilience. Because for me, I think, yes, we escaped. And physically, it was very hard. Also, emotionally, the last few steps last few meters as the car that was taking us at the middle of the night crosses this imaginary line called Iranian Pakistan border and then the driver says look back at the tree behind you that was iran now you're in pakistan some of the other people that were escaping with us some of them became very emotional and they said let's go back let's get the bit of the soil of uh, the dust uh, from the Iranian side because that's our country and then another person saying well it's just the dust it moves between the two imaginary lines and you know but still that's symbolic that is the tree that was Iran this is a tree that's Pakistan and this is freedom so be happy was not happiness because at that moment the thought of my parents being in Iran the thought of so many bahais that might never see <laughs> their family ever again. They might die. All those things created temporary, I would say, <laughs> immense uh, sadness. So it, it was very hard. Sometimes we did regret. We say, you would say, how could we have left? Because the lesser the number of Baha'is, maybe there will be more pressure on them. So we felt guilty. Then we thought, what is the purpose of this guilt? We are now in Pakistan. Let's do our best here. So the process was uh, we were accepted by United Nations as refugees. The Baha'is basically would get divided. Which cities they would send you? A border city of Pakistan, Afghanistan. And that was an amazing coincidence that they sent us there because that made me become interested in actually, although I was a refugee and I thought I had suffered, only being there I became aware of the suffering of Afghans and became aware of the suffering of refugees around the world. So my suffering was uh, nothing compared to what I observed there. Uh, so that helped me to think about, you know, it's not just about me because I always wanted to become a doctor. <laughs> uh, but in Iran, we had no choice because Baha'is could not go to university. So I had resigned myself. I will contribute to betterment of the world through other professions. But once I escaped, I thought, oh, that possibility might exist. So I wanted to help my patients. So I thought, oh, i will become a doctor, help my patients. But when I saw the refugees in Peshawar, I also became aware of the social dimension of health and how that aspect needs to be addressed. In later, when I became a doctor, It allowed me then to travel around the world and sometimes, you know, visit countries that had certain suffering unique to that nation and learn about other aspects of injustices that might contribute to our physical and mental health. Every aspect of my life has been actually a lesson Mm. that has uh, contributed to my decision about what to do next.
0: So, Mm. yeah, so it's
1: been a journey. Yeah,
0: wow. What an amazing journey. (laughs) What's incredible is that you were a refugee yourself, and that became a motivating factor, or one of the motivating factors, to contribute and to become a doctor and help others. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Amanio. It's been wonderful chatting with you and to listen to your journey. And I know there there's so many different layers to it. Um, We could spend hours here talking about it. I know you've mentioned to me before we had this interview that your dad was actually imprisoned. He was tortured you know of other individuals that have been through severe trauma through their refugee experiences and you have taken that experience and the growth from it and contributed back to your society and again it makes me think of Viktor Frankl's quote which is one of my favorite quotes from his book Man's Search for Meaning where he says we can bear the unbearable if we can find meaning in it. And I think you have taken your experience and what you've observed and found meaning in it to contribute back to your community. Thank you very much for sharing your story.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I'd also like to thank our listeners and our great team who work behind the scenes to bring Mind and Soul Matters to you. If you wish to keep up to date with new episodes, follow Mind and Soul Matters on Instagram, Facebook, and on your preferred podcast app. You can find us on most platforms, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and Apple Podcasts, all available for free. Think of a few friends that might be inspired by Mind and Soul Matters and share with them. If they're new to podcasting, show them how it all works. Look forward to your company next time on Mind and Soul Matters.